Hey Cardies, it's Hugh here. Just a warning on this episode, it does include a brief mention of suicide and several mentions of mental illness. Do take care of yourselves and if you need to listen to this another time, please do so. You're listening to CardiCast. A podcast about galleries, libraries, archive and museums. Brought to you by New Cardigan, an Australian-based glam community. Hello and welcome to CardiCast. My name's Hugh Rundle and today I am interviewing PhD candidate, practitioner researcher, advocate, librarian and coffee addict, Beck Miller. Beck, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks um, for having me. Definitely uh, the pleasure is ours. Beck, you are many things as I just said coffee addict is probably the most important but the other one's coming pretty close well, yes. look we may talk about the coffee addiction at some point during the interview <laughs> but what I'd like to start off with is actually your PhD research um, you are looking into library services to people with invisible disabilities and I thought we might start by asking you what is an invisible disability this is a really great question and it's something that often comes up when I talk to people because it's not really language that we're familiar with using. So an invisible disability might also be called a hidden disability or a latent disability. But the idea is that it is a disability that exists but might not be immediately obvious or evident to another person. So some great examples of invisible disabilities are things like Tourette's or autism spectrum disorder, which previously also included Asperger's. Also some sensory disabilities such as deaf or uh, hard of hearing or sensory as in profound vision loss can sometimes be invisible as well. It also includes mental health disabilities as well. Fantastic. Thank you. That's Hopefully very clear for our audience. <laughs> Always happy to talk about them. <laughs> You're, you obviously haven't finished your PhD, otherwise I'd be introducing us, Dr Beck. But can I, I know you've written, a, you know, you've published some research already in this area. So what have you found so far? And, and I believe this is in the Victorian context in particular. It is. So my PhD looks particularly at Victorian public library services. So the findings are equally applicable, though, to anywhere that does look at serving people in a library environment or in a customer service environment as well. So a few of the things that I found and that personally really concern me as a librarian and as a manager is that we haven't actually had a huge degree of progress in this area. Like when we look at things like training for library staff in disabilities, often this is undertaken once people enter into the industry. It's not really something that we tend to cover when we're actually doing our library studies degree or anything. So this means that when we start in the industry, our access to things like training and what's actually covered in that training can vary a lot. And as library staff, that then means that some of us might have really great skills and really great experience in providing services to people with invisible disabilities. But some of us might feel a little bit unsure or maybe even scared because we don't really know what's expected or how to provide services in a way that meets people's needs and is still um, really appropriate and really helps people feel welcome in that space. 
So a lot of my research, well, my research is quite broad, but a lot of my research kind of focuses around that intersection. So how we can provide a library as an information, social connection and resource and education hub for people with invisible disabilities in this environment where we might not have a huge amount of access to training we might not necessarily know what's required and because invisible disabilities are invisible we might actually not know who in our community actually has an invisible disability or what they need so i guess one of my key findings has been that we're trying we're trying really hard and there's a lot of really passionate people in the industry which is great but there's more to be done, so areas to grow. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I'm guessing there's probably a pretty sizable proportion of people with invisible disabilities who may not be particularly interested in, well, I was about to say disclose, that seems like not quite the right word, but, you know, they, they, they might not feel like they should have to tell anybody yeah. about their disability Yes, in order absolutely. to receive the service quality that they need. Absolutely, like there's this idea in, especially in um, invisible disabilities that I'm looking at at the moment, of diversity by design rather than diversity by addition, which is just words that I bandy around, but it makes sense in my head, so I'll run you through it. So diversity by design is this idea that it is embedded into the structure, into the way that we run the organisation, into the way we provide our services, into our very existence as an entity by the very nature of that. So it's just part of who we are. Whereas diversity by addition is this idea that, hey, we provide these disability services on top of what we already do, yay. And it's kind of like this idea that this is our normal service and like this is our extraordinary service, yay go us. My argument is that it should just be all part of our service. Like we shouldn't be like talking about this is our normal and this is our additional. It's just what we do. We're just for the library. We're just for our community and our community will have people with invisible disabilities in it. So even though there's not a prevalence rate around invisible disabilities, if we take autism spectrum and mental health disabilities such as anxiety and depression alone, approximately 30% of Australians with a disability will have an invisible disability, which is a huge proportion. And like people with an invisible disability shouldn't have to disclose to be able to receive a service. It should just be built into what we do. That's my position anyway. So disclaimer, that's me. <laughs> Sorry. That sounds good to me. Thanks. Um, so, you, okay, so you've identified some problems there. Well, not pro you've, well yes. Okay, you've identified some problems and some, um, shall we say, room for growth. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, sorry to put you on the spot here, Beck, but I'm wondering if you've managed to go so far as to sort of think about some, I don't know, I'm a pretty practical person, you know, if, if, if we've got one of our listeners is sort of thinking, okay, well, I'm a, I don't know, I'm a branch library manager. I, I want to get on to, I want to do something about this situation now. Um, what sort of things should they be thinking about or, or where would you sort of suggest they start? Yeah. So this is a really, really, really common question that I get. And um, like when I presented in Greece, this was the question that I was asked, how can I do this in an affordable manner? It costs a lot of money to do modifications. 
And it can do. It can cost a lot of money to look at things like accessibility apps, accessibility features. But there's also things that we can do for very little cost that can have good impacts. So reflecting here on one of my interviewees, sorry. So one of my interviewees was running through with their particular experience of mental health in a public setting. And one of the things that they observed was the only place that they're able to be alone in public is the toilet. So when you're in the toilet, when you're in the bathroom, there's no one else around, there's no cameras, you're completely able to be by yourself. And sometimes for someone that might have social phobias or that might have anxieties or stresses around being in a public environment, a toilet is a place where you can go to and breathe for a few seconds and just help center yourself. Putting a sign up saying where the toilets are if you don't have toilets in the building, putting a sign up saying where the closest toilets are so that people can independently find these places to be able to centre themselves and to have that moment where they're not under inspection. If you can do anything else as well, it's simply looking at your furniture. With your furniture, especially in libraries, we have a habit of plastic furnitures or we have a habit of really, really soft armchairs, which are difficult for people to get out of if they've got sore backs, sore legs, spinal issues, mobility issues, anything like that. We also have a habit of using the same furniture all throughout the library because it looks so good and we're all just like, oh my God, it looks so cute. And it's kind of like, like picture going into that space and like there's a table set up with two chairs and like you're told that you can talk there. And then you go into another space and there's a table set up with two chairs and you're told that you can't talk there. Like, what the hell? <laughs> How can you understand what the rules of the space is if everything looks the same? So think about these sort of visual cues that you can implement as well. Even just a sign up or a red color, red always means stop, a sign up with a red color saying quiet area or something like this. The use of a red table rather than a brown table. If it's a red table, it's a white table. Something like this so that people can independently understand the rules of that space and feel welcome in that space without feeling like they need to go up and find someone to gatekeep that space for them. So these are really low cost solutions and they're really easy ways that you can start to embed in this idea of multiple ways of interacting and using the space. I did tell you I would ramble. I feel very passionately about this. <laughs> no, this is all good stuff. Now, we had a, a small chat about this before we started recording. You're quite passionate about being a practitioner researcher. So I did say that at the top of this interview, you are a PhD candidate, but you're also a, a librarian, a sort of practicing librarian. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? And why is that so important to you? I would love to, Hugh. So to me, practitioner researcher is really the space that I see contemporary librarianship moving into. So for a long time, we've talked about research and practice as being divided. So someone's either a researcher or they're a practitioner and never the twain shall meet. So the problem with this is that we see research coming out that's not necessarily applicable to our experiences in the profession because it's not necessarily applicable to our experiences. We look at it and go, oh my God, what can I do with this? This is useless. And we kind of set it on that eh pile to look at when we've got a few moments. 
Conversely, because we're practitioners, sometimes we lose sight of the improvements that can be made and what needs to happen and the evaluation necessary for these improvements. And we just think, hey, I know this will work. I'll just do it. And then it doesn't work. And we're all just like, what? <laughs> like, what happened there? So to me, practitioner researcher really struggles that line. It's a really, really important role that I think that we should be developing skills in because it helps us to improve practice through methodological, grounded, and evaluation of research and by incorporating our own research in this environment. But it also allows us to directly improve our research by relating it back to the profession and what's required in the profession and how we can grow in the profession. Through doing this, we benefit our people, well, our staff, by building their knowledge, by building their skill set. But we also benefit our communities, whether that's academic, public, whoever they are, wherever they are by actually putting in place requirements, systems, improvements, services that actually meet their needs. So it's something that I feel really passionately about. And I know that there's a lot of growing interest in the industry as well around this. One thing that I will disclaimer here, and you would have heard when Hugh introduced me and when we spoke about it just then, we spoke about it as practitioner researcher, not researcher practitioner. It's a really, really small difference, but as a researcher and a practitioner, this is really important to me because I am a practitioner improving research through my practitioner lens and I'm a researcher improving my practice through my researcher lens. But I come into this with a focus that practice is as important as research. And we have to do research in our practice if we want to improve it. It's how we grow as a profession and how we grow as individuals as well. And do people need to be enrolled in a PhD program in order to be practitioner researchers? I'm so glad you asked this question. So glad. So this is where I need to disclaimer that this is my thoughts. So there are a few schools of thoughts with practitioner researcher that you can only build research skills by undertaking a PhD or higher level research study. My perspective personally as myself, is that research skills can be grown through undertaking any type of research project and program. So they do need to be grown in a thorough way and they do need to be grown in a vigorous way. By this, I mean, you can't do a Google search of what is qualitative research and then say, oh my God, I'm a practitioner researcher, yay. So it can start whetting your appetite and get you looking at what you need to do, but it's not the end point. So to me, when I look at the research skills, I look at it as, as being a scholarly pursuit and I look at it as something that you build and you grow upon by undertaking either an accredited path of study in research development. This could be a certificate course, it could be a PhD course, but it has to be a research-based study or it's something that you grow through experience in the research portfolio. So this could be something through a research assistant role, these sort of things. But it is something, as with anything, if you want to get good at it, it is something that you continue to work at and you look at the highest level of skill that you can build in this role as well. So start with Google, but don't end there. <laughs> great, great advice for all sorts of things as, as a librarian. I know, um, if only I did that when I learned how to cook. <laughs> surely you just looked at YouTube videos. <laughs> My cooking skills are about scrambled eggs and toast. So yeah. Oh, <laughs> what do you need? 
so some kind of formalized mm, mm. you know ideally accredited um path of study in your view what about publishing though Beck? publishing is a really really good point um so part of publishing look Academia, in my experience, is really interesting in that respect because there are lots of opportunities to engage in things like research and publication, either through your own merits or by working with other people as well. And this can be a really, really valuable part of gaining those skills in research, gaining those skills in communication, everything like this as well. I do feel that, as with anything, publishing is something that begins and grows and reinforces your skills. But it's like with anything, though, you don't want that just to be the way that you gain your skills. You do have to look at other ways. I always look at it as if we just learned how to write purely by publishing and that's all we did, our writing would be very, very clear because we'll be great at writing for an academic journal, but it's not going to be great in all circumstances so certainly for some of my team I think if I wrote to them like I do for a journal they would probably cry so <laughs> sometimes you need to adjust your skills and grow your skills it can be a foundation point but it can't just be the sole way and I'll clarify there when I'm talking about the research skills development as well that I know that Alia also offers a practitioner researcher stream at the moment as well so if you are interested in practitioner researcher research practitioner these sort of skill groups do definitely check that portfolio out as well or reach out to me and always happy to have a chat right great so I guess this is what you were saying earlier about if you're a practitioner researcher then your research is informed by your practice mm. but also the whole point of it is that you are not not just writing to yeah. show off to other researchers how clever you are but you're actually exactly. the point of it is for is for the research to influence other people's practice so you need to communicate in a way that's going to be clear to um, practitioners who maybe aren't researchers absolutely knowing your audience and this is a skill of a practitioner researcher as well being able to translate what we learn in academia into practice so not always easy, but yeah, valuable. I want to sort of take a small step backwards here because some of our listeners might be thinking, well, this is a really interesting conversation here, but you didn't really explain who Becky is other than um, her caffeine addiction. So also I have a cat. <laughs> Sorry, classic well, library. Now, now's your chance to tell us about all of those things. So um Beck, you're you're very passionate about practitioner research. You're studying a PhD in library related you're a qualified librarian how did all of this happen oh um when i managed to talk a person out of committing suicide when he was on the phone with me in a gun in one hand that's uh, so, pretty pretty dramatic yeah so that was when it all started for me so um i worked for the federal government in disability rehabilitation and employment so as part of that, I worked with people that we classed as having multiple presenting issues. So this could be anything from homelessness to low literacy, um, drug and alcohol, substance abuse, mental health was particularly predominant as well. They were absolutely amazing and fantastic people. And I found through my employment with them that what I took for granted as a young, reasonably well-educated white woman was not necessarily the same context or the same experiences that a lot of my people had had. So the one of the things that really, really changed how I looked at my field was this experience with one of my clients 
to go through that experience and not speaking into the background was of course something that reflected to me that something isn't right that I'm taking for granted here and what I was taking for granted was the fact that everyone would have the same access to things that I had of all things, it started with simple conversation with one of my people about why don't you pop over to the library to print a resume? And they said, libraries aren't for me. And I thought, why? Why aren't libraries for me? And that started my curiosity around this. Why was something that I was taking for granted not for some people? Why, why were these people that I really cared about not able to have the same rights and same access that I had? So from there, I moved into initially academic libraries and worked through um, at that stage through while I got my master's degree. And at that stage, I also finished my honours degree, psychology, sociology. So then moved through with that one and then made the transition into public libraries. And pretty soon after I was in public libraries, I looked around and went, oh that's why <laughs> and i looked at the culture of the library and i looked at the people behind the service desk in the library and i looked at the building and i looked at the light and i looked at how we shelved things and i looked at the chairs and i looked at the fact that we had an accessibility ramp but software like text to speak everything like that wasn't known of and i looked at the fact that in the training i and I'm not dissing my former um, employee here, I was very, very lucky. But in the training, when we dealt with things like mental health, it was very much around the how do we manage mental health? Not how do I help? How do I manage? And it really got me thinking that I love libraries. I absolutely love libraries. And I think we have so many talented, amazing fascinating, wonderful people. And my research has just reinforced me how much library staff care and library staff from library technicians, library officers, library shelvers, up to library managers, up to executives, we all care so much. But there are things that we don't always see because it's not always clear to us. And so that was kind of how I got started in this research. And that was kind of how I made that transition. And all of these little experiences all came together into this, well, I can't really say one moment because it's been continuous moments over the last few years of going, oh, I see now. And there are things that I miss because I have a huge amount of privilege and I admit that I'm young and I'm white and I'm female and I realise I have privileges, but it makes me think about things that we can change. Very powerful, Beck. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think we're very lucky to have you in the profession doing this important work. And uh, that's been a really interesting conversation. Is there anything else you wanted to share with our audience before we wrap up? Yeah, um, I just want to go back to some of my research here and some of the voices from my participants, particularly library staff. And one thing that kept coming out from library staff are the experiences that they had. And I'll ask them, so when you've been serving people with an invisible disability, like, how do you know? Like, what do you do? What's a great experience? Everything like this. And when I look at my data, the words that come out from how library staff see this is helpful, caring, welcoming, kind, professional, connectors as well because we connect people to information that they might not even know exists 
and it's kind of like like if I can say nothing else it's just we are trying really really hard as a profession and we're really 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 pushing with all of our heart to make the libraries as best as they can be for everyone and it's kind of like like if you have a tiny pinch of curiosity about something that you notice in the library that could change or could be reviewed or could be better think about it and then think about how can I grow my skills to be able to address this what can I do we have power you don't have to just wait on oh I better wait for someone else to tell me what to do go out and find the answers and change it <laughs> you can do it <laughs> brilliant advice in all all sorts of uh, areas of life you can do it don't, don't wait for permission <laughs> Um, look, Beck, it's been a real pleasure talking to you on CardiCast. We'll we'll pop some contact details for you in our show notes if people want to get in touch. But um, is there anything else you wanted to give a shout out to or point people towards if they've sort of been inspired by this conversation and uh, want to learn more? Plug here. <coughs> Cough, plug. Um, please feel free to go to my ORCID. Um, look for Rebecca Muir, CSU um, slash Victoria University. Likewise, please also feel free to check out my CSU profile that covers um, Charles State University, that covers my research and my research interest. Particularly, and some of the things that we've run out of time to talk about is my research around position descriptions and job advertisements and how we actually recruit for diversity in the field. This is a growing area, I think, that we are all going to be moving into as we all steadily recover from the absolute horror of COVID. So please have a bit of a look, reach out, ask any questions in case you haven't realised I love to chat. So let me know. <laughs> Brilliant. And um, we can always have you back to, uh, to talk about hiring for diversity and all that good stuff. I would love that. Literally, my eyes are twinkling right now. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. All right, we'll, we'll let you go because you're a very busy practitioner researcher. Beck, thanks once again for joining us on CardiCast and um, good luck with the PhD. Thank you so much, Hugh, for having me. This has been lovely. Thanks for listening, folks. If you'd like to get in touch with New Cardigan, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook or at our website, newcardigan.org. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Remember to like and subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. If you want to know more about New Cardigan, check out our website for events, merchandise, news and more. And remember, folks, JFDI. <laughs>